Hi, I'm Jay from San Diego. I'm Chase from Seattle. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Fran Lebowitz, the writer, more or less doesn't feel stage fright. I have no anxiety about it at all. I have actually fallen asleep in the Letterman Green Room. She's pretty much fearless, except in one key area. I have only one fear, and that is of writing. It's Bullseye. This week, I sit down with one of the world's funniest people, the writer Fran Lebowitz. Find out why she thinks she was expelled from high school, why she once strolled into a publishing office to submit a manuscript while not wearing any shoes, and why she's had writer's block for going on 35 years. Then drummer and producer Kareem Riggins tells us about the record that changed his life. He was 10, and if he's being completely honest, he picked it because he liked the label. James Brown's name just looks so grand to me, you know. All this week on Bullseye, let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by one of our favorite culture critics to share some recommendations for stuff that's worth your time. This week, we're joined by our friend Mark Frauenfelder from boingboing.net, the directory of wonderful things. Hey, Mark, how's it going? It's going great, Jesse. Thanks. So let's start with your first recommendation from, I will say, a friend of the program, uh, the wonderful British writer John Ronson. He's got a new book out. He does, and it's a wonderful book. So yeah, John, uh, as you know, is is a great writer and a documentary filmmaker, and he goes out and and profiles kind of quirky people and quirky systems. Um, And so Lost at Sea is a collection of about 20 stories that appeared in The Guardian, and they're just wonderful stories. Just off the top of my head, he profiled the transgender woman who invented satellite radio and became a billionaire and then became a billionaire all over again when she developed some kind of uh, cardiovascular drug for her 10-year-old daughter who was going to die without an uninvented medicine. Um, And her latest uh, venture is making a realistic robot of her partner. And so John (laughs) interviewed this robot, and it was like an amazing article. Every one of the stories I thought was enthralling in this book, and um, just just love his his style, his first person journalism. He's wonderful. Let's talk about this iPhone slash iPad game called Sir Benfro's Brilliant Balloon. Um, so this is this is in the classic genre of ballooning games. <laughs> it is, and it's also in the classic genre of. A tapping game. All you have to do is tap the screen, and it doesn't matter where you tap it. That's the entirety of the user interface. You control this little guy who's holding a balloon as he explores these tunnels, and uh, the art is kind of like a mashup between Gory and and uh, Ernst Haeckel. It looks kind of like Victorian woodcuts in a way. Really cool. A little bit like Yellow Submarine, too. And so by tapping the screen, you can make the this guy who's holding the balloon go up or down, Sir Benfro, and he needs to collect fireflies as he goes along. They're called the fireflies are called light emitting daves. It's a very whimsical <laughs> game. You know, there's zero learning curve. I, I like these kinds of games where it's just a waiting in line at the grocery store kind of kind of thing to do, and my kids love it too. It's nice that there has been a revival in mobile gaming, particularly of the very simple games uh, that ran on, you know, home computers in the 1980s and uh, early to mid-1990s. But they have the advantage of this more powerful hardware, so you can have a really simple but also very distinctive game. Yeah, it's true. Um, You know, the, the resolution is great, so you can have really rich graphics. The music is excellent. They're, they sell the soundtrack to the game on iTunes if you want it, and it's a really great soundtrack. The art d- direction is good, and um, w- well-designed game. I, I think 
people think, oh, it's just a game that you tap with your finger, how simple, how easy to do. But really, it's challenging to make a fun game that, that has such a simple interface like that. And I think they pulled it off. Mark Frauenfelder from Boing Boing recommends Sir Ben Fro's Brilliant Balloon, which you can get for the iOS in iTunes, and Lost at Sea, the John Ronson Mysteries by John Ronson. Mark, thanks as always. You bet, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Fran Lebowitz has always been uncowed by the world around her. She got herself expelled from two high schools. At one of them, she dressed up as Fidel Castro for Halloween. And this was when Fidel Castro was really Fidel Castro. She moved to New York at 18 without even a high school degree and managed to talk Andy Warhol into giving her a column and interview. Within a couple of years, she was a cultural phenomenon. Her two books of essays were bestsellers, and they're still among the funniest American books, I don't know, ever. But in the 30 years or so since her books came out, she's barely published anything at all. She says that these days, the only thing that scares her is putting pen to paper. Lately, she's mostly made her living talking, which, to be fair, she's also pretty darn good at. Martin Scorsese made a documentary about her called Public Speaking. This year, she recorded an audio version of her books. Here she is describing a typical day in her life, circa 1974 or so. My day... An introduction of sorts. 12.35 p.m. The phone rings. I am not amused. This is not my favorite way to wake up. My favorite way to wake up is to have a certain French movie star whisper to me softly at 2.30 in the afternoon that if I want to get to Sweden in time to pick up my Nobel Prize for Literature, I had better ring for breakfast. This occurs rather less often than one might wish. Today is a perfect example for my caller is an agent from Los Angeles who informs me that I don't know him. True, and not without reason. He is audibly tan. He is interested in my work. His interest has led him to the conclusion that it would be a good idea for me to write a movie comedy. I would, of course, have total artistic freedom, for evidently comic writers have taken over the movie business. I look around my apartment, a feat readily accomplished by simply glancing up, and remark that Dino De Laurentiis would be surprised to hear that. He chuckles tanly and suggests that we talk. Fran Lebowitz, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I read somewhere that you were expelled from high school. Um, A, is that true? Because I, I'm not able to cite my source because I don't remember it. And B, what, what were the circumstances? Yes, it is true. Although, as you can see, not recently. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, the circumstances were murky even at the time. The school from which I was expelled uh, was a deservedly small Episcopalian girls' school. Um, I had not attended it for very long. I, I, I'd been there, I'd been there the previous year and then just a month or two into my senior years when they expelled me. These were the days where you could be expelled from school with almost no reason, especially a private school. Um, and these were also the days where parents... Um, instantly went on the side of the school, that no matter what the school complained about, their parent, your parents took their side, not just my parents, in general. Uh, children and uh, teenagers faced a united wall of opposition. <laughs> now so the school complains about the kid and the kid's parents sue the school, but this is not what occurred. So uh, what the headmaster of the school uh, in his brief letter said was that I had – I was a bad influence on the other girls – and that I had usurped his power, whatever that could possibly mean. I was, you know, a 17-year-old girl. Were you hiring and firing teachers? I mean, I really don't know what he meant by that. Uh, I, I think that in the end, um, I was expelled for what my mother used to call that look on your face. So I think I was expelled for general surliness, but not expressed because I was not – people always think that I did something very dramatic, like I said, fired the score. Um, you didn't have to do those things. And I was not that kind of kid either. You know, I mean, I wasn't um, a blatantly disruptive kid, nor am I a blatantly disruptive adult. Um, I had excellent manners then, and I do now, but my disapproval or disdain <laughs> leaps to the fore no matter where I am. And I think that's why I was expelled. But I, I really am not positive. There was really no inciting. Were there, were there a series of small inciting no. incidents? No. Did you get in trouble before you got expelled? I mean, I got a little bits of trouble. I, I um, 
we had a, a Halloween party, um, and I came as Fidel Castro, uh, <laughs> which was like 1969, I think. So it was, you know, there, there was no wiggle room there to be Fidel Castro. Um, and they disapproved of that. Uh, they made me take off my Fidel Castro mask, even though it was the best Fidel Castro mask you've ever seen. And I wore it with um, kind of, you know, army fatigue looking clothes, you know, like khaki pants. And um, we all had then, or not everyone in the school, you know, old army clothes. That was a kind of um, fashion among teenagers at the time. So I had that. And I came with a cigar. Um, I did not light the cigar in the school. So I got in a little trouble for that. Not tremendous. They made me take off the mask. Um, I got caught smoking a couple times. It was not the same thing as getting caught smoking now, you know. Uh, so, no, nothing really big. My grades were okay. They weren't great, but I wasn't failing everything like I had in public school. No, I think it was just a general um, dislike for me. Did you end up in this uh, Episcopalian school because you had, were failing in public school? Yes. I mean, uh, I didn't get thrown out of public high school for failing because you cannot. You still cannot. Um, you cannot get a, get kicked out of public high school for getting bad grades. Um, I think it's just that the school, the high school, um, told my parents that uh, if I didn't go to private school, um, I would absolutely have zero chance of getting into college. Um, And also because we had taken the SATs and apparently um, the difference between my English SATs, which was a perfect score, which I no longer remember what that's supposed to be, and my math SATs, which was below the level you would get if you just, you know, showed up, was <laughs> the most extreme difference in the history of New Jersey. So I was required to go to a psychiatrist. The, the school made me go to a psychiatrist. I went to a psychiatrist three days a week during school time, so I was thrilled. The psychiatrist was near the school I could walk over, and I went to the psychiatrist three times a week um, because they apparently thought this was some sort of psychiatric problem. You know, instead of what I could have told them then and what is still the case now, I have only half a brain. <laughs> but they were surprised that I did very well even in English because I wasn't doing very well in my English courses because I was never awake in high school. The only time I woke up is when the bell rang. I would get up, walk to my next class, put my head on my desk and fall asleep. So tell me about uh, tell me about the town that you grew up in. You grew up in New Jersey and it sounds like – I was just in New Jersey a couple of days ago, not that far from where you grew up. And it's still sort of a very beautiful, kind of oddly pastoral, certainly for me being from California. Was that the kind of place that you were in? Was it like suburban? Was it a town in the old-timey sense? I grew up in Morristown, New Jersey. And when I was growing up, it was a small town. I mean, even though it was you know 40 miles from New York, um, it was not suburban in that sense of being a commuting place. Um, it was a beautiful town. It's a pre-revolutionary war town. Um, it was a very waspy town. Um, and it was really a beautiful town. I really enjoyed my childhood, you know, from birth to like, you know, 13 or whenever algebra appeared. Uh, and, but the entire time I was a child, uh, my living room was filled with women trying to stop this highway that was about to go through. And of course, they failed. And the highway did go through. And as I said, it ruined the town. The town is, is really horrible now. Um, and it, it's a tr- kind of a tragedy if you like small town life. Uh, but uh, I think that you know small towns, if there are any left, I, really a town like that doesn't seem to exist anymore. Um, it, it, you know, small towns or even the suburbs—they're very nice places for children, but they are really deadly places for adults. And I would include thirteen-year-olds in that category. <laughs> I li- I like the idea of of uh, algebra appearing being the great turning point in your life. As though, like you, as though you could write like a coming-of-age novel where the coming-of-age is overcoming specifically algebra. Yes, and I never overcame it. So, <laughs> yes, it's, it's a thing. I know people – most people, I believe, hate being teenagers. Um, it's really – there's only, you know, as everyone knows, like two people in every high school that are enjoying their teenage years. What, what was your relationship with your parents like? My relationship with my parents from the time I started having problems in school uh, was terrible. I mean, it was really terrible because they were in a fury at me and um, because they – it never occurred to them maybe something was bothering me. Um, that just wasn't the way we were brought up. I mean, I'm sure there were maybe parents who would have paid more specific attention to their children, but not generally, not among the people – really, I think not generally at the time uh, so that I wasn't living up to their expectations. That was your job, by the way. Your job was not to express your specialness as it is now. Your job was – to do what your parents said. And especially, I think, you know, my uh, 
I'm a second generation American. So you were you were out there with the hopes of your immigrant grandparents, your parents, and you had certain things you had to do because you were lucky, which I did feel because they were constantly telling you that. And in a way, in that way, they were right. You are very lucky. There are no pogroms here. What is your excuse? You know, I mean, algebra compared to a pogrom, you have to admit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there is a sharp, you know, distinction between these two things. I mean, they're both stinkers. but Yes, but you have to admit a pogrom is worse. So um, you were supposed – and you were – in my family and in many Jewish families, you were supposed to go to college. You know, Now, being a girl, you had less on your shoulders in that way because you were not supposed to do anything after that. That's what I was wondering about because my mother, who uh, also comes from uh, not that far removed from the old country family and is a, a little bit older than you but not too much – um, no one's she, too much older than me. She went, she went to she went to college and lived at home while she was going to college. She's from Washington D.C. and went to George Washington. And her parents didn't speak to her while she was going to college because they didn't think that she should go to college. They think that they thought that she should be getting married or whatever. No, in my family, you're supposed to go to college then get married. Um, you were, and in my case, because my mother went to college, so in, in my case, I was specifically supposed to go to Radcliffe. Because my mother didn't get into Radcliffe. My mother didn't get into Radcliffe as far as my mother was concerned. And perhaps this is true. They did have a very small Jewish quota. And you had to be kind of a genius if you were Jewish to get into Radcliffe. My mother was and is not a kind of a genius. My mother may have been rejected for other reasons. I don't know. Um, So I was supposed to go to Radcliffe. But I was certainly not supposed to not finish high school. Um, But they never talked about – other than going to college, which is something you heard about from the day you were born. If you were a girl – um, they never had any other goals for you. And I remember the only thing I can remember my mother ever saying about my future was she said, you know, Francie, you should marry a college professor because you like to read so much. And if you married a college professor, you'd always be in a place where there were a lot of books. That was the sole um, uh, encouragement or uh, instruction I received for my future. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Fran Lebowitz. An audiobook of her essays was released earlier this year. It's called The Fran Lebowitz Reader. So when you were this age where you were uh, getting booted from high school, it was also like 1967, 1968, 1969, right? And everything was going ape in the entire world. Was any of that stuff happening yeah. in New Jersey? Yeah, it was happening everywhere, obviously, more slowly in New Jersey than, say, in New York. Um, uh, So, yes, I suppose because people who are younger than me, which is pretty much all people, um, the way in which the more recent past has been shown to people, it looks like everything happens, you know, coherently. You know, but if you look back in your own life, even 10 years ago, you would see that that is not the case. Yes, these things were going on. Um, I do not believe, although there's no way of proving it, that my problems in school had anything to do with that. Um, Probably because that stuff was going on, um, it was more fun to have been kicked out of school and just come to New York. Um, But that may also not be true because it's, you know, the truth is it's pretty much fun to be 18. You know, is it fun (laughs) to be 18 almost no matter where you are unless you're in prison? You know, so that since I wasn't in prison, um, uh, yes, that was what was going on in the culture at the time. Uh, But I'm not sure that that would have made a difference in my personal situation. There's a great essay in one of your books. I think it's in Metropolitan Life called Advice for Teenagers, where one of the one of the pieces, there's numerous pieces of advice. One of them is uh, to try and avoid signing contracts, even if you've reached the age of majority, because no adult would ever tell you that uh, they are happy with a contract they signed when they were 19. Yeah, probably 21, because that was, when I was young, 21 was the age that, that you reach your majority. I find it so amazing that now that people are so much less mature throughout their entire lives, they move that down. And they did that because of the draft is why they did because there was, you know, people were vociferously complaining uh, and legitimately that you could go in the army at 18, but you couldn't, you know, sign. I don't think signing contracts was really much of a thing. Uh, yes. And now that I'm much older, I would say it's just better never to sign a contract at all. <laughs> no matter how old you are, that you turns out you never are old enough to sign a contract. Um, so that uh, that that yes, that that piece, uh, which is in I think social studies, um, I wrote for Newsweek, which as you know has just died, um, and 
uh, they had, I think, a back page called My Turn. The different person wrote it every week. And I wrote that piece initially for Newsweek uh, and uh, received then and up until like five minutes ago, endless angry letters from guidance counselors because I say something not flattering about guidance counselors. I guess they still have – they must still have guidance counselors because now even adults have them. They're called like life coaches or something. After a break, Fran Lebowitz will talk about her writer's block. This is what surprises me that there are many people who have theories about why I'm not publishing books. We'll find out her theory. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter. Have a favorite Bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer and the celebrated cultural force, Fran Lebowitz. When she was 18, she moved to New York City. She knew nothing about the place, but she wasn't scared at all. There didn't seem to be anything bad about New York. You know, I mean, one, there was no algebra. That's why, you know, I wasn't frightened in, the, in any way. Um, the, I remember when I told my parents I was moving to New York, my mother, you know, who I would never have thought of as being very worldly, said, but we don't know anyone in New York. And I thought my mother meant I wouldn't make friends. And so I said, well, that's right. I'll make friends. Um, but I realized, you know, later uh, that – she knew enough about the world to know, you know, that's how you get jobs. That's how you find things. And I know that now because I spend about half my time getting kids jobs who are, you know, the children of friends of mine. Um, so I think it's very helpful to have that kind of ignorance when you're young. You know, I, I think it because it uh, allows you to do stuff that maybe I wouldn't have done it if I'd known enough to be scared or thought maybe I wouldn't be able to get a job or I wouldn't be able to. No, I actually – I had – Considering what a failure I was in high school, I had I was brimming with confidence. Did you have a scheme? Um, yes, I said I'm I'm moving to New York to become a famous writer. I had a book, I had a book of poetry. I wrote poetry, um, which I think is okay if you're a teenager to write poetry, um, and it, for very few people is it okay after that. I was not one of the people that would be okay after that, but I submitted my book. I wrote a book. It was called Poughkeepsie Blood. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I submitted um, my book to Grove Press, which was the publisher that published a lot of poetry of, you know, actual poets. I actually walked into the office. I looked up Grove Press in the um, phone book, got someone to type for me. I didn't know how to type. I still don't. Um, walked into the office barefoot. I used to walk around New York barefoot. Okay. Now my feeling, barefoot. Okay. And let me assure you, it was not cleaner then. <laughs> walked in barefoot to the office of Grove Press and Allowed them to have my manuscript. Like, put it on the desk. This is my book. Wait, did you – I want to talk for a second about barefoot. Were you w walking barefoot as a, as a cultural identifier? A lot of kids walk barefoot then. I mean, I didn't do it all the time. Once I got to New York, I used to drive barefoot. I got, I got um, tickets all the time by the police for driving barefoot because they were always looking for kids How doing that. How did they know that you were driving because barefoot? Because they would stop teenagers. Like, the New Jersey State Troopers would stop teenagers all the time. And so you would be stopped. And they would – you were scared of the police, because, mainly because they were going to call your parents, who you were much more scared of. Um, and driving without shoes is against the law. It was then. And that would be the only thing they would find with me is no shoes. So you get a ticket. I didn't walk barefoot in New York too uh, – for too long once I realized that it was dangerous to walk barefoot. But I did walk in a Grove Press barefoot. I did give them this manuscript and then waited for them to accept it. But it never occurred to me they wouldn't accept it. And let me assure you, this was at the level of all books of poetry written by 17-year-olds. <clears throat> you know, there was nothing better about it than that. Um, and then they rejected it, much to my shock. Sh I was shocked. I, I also used to read that poetry at the Village Vanguard. Um, and I happened to have been, and probably still am, a fantastic reader. And I was so good at reading this that a man from Yale – um, invited me to submit my poetry to the Yale Younger Poets. I don't know if they still have it, but it was an incredibly prestigious poetry prize at Yale. And I did. I thought, well, that, that's more like it. I sent it to him, and the man wrote me a letter saying, this can't be the same 
poetry that you read. That's how good I was at reading it. But on the page, it's as terrible as it actually was. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Fran Lebowitz. The essayist and humorist has just released an audio version of her two books. She doesn't have children, but not having any direct experience with something has never stopped her from having a strong opinion about it. Here she is in a reading from her 1981 collection, Social Studies. Your responsibility as a parent is not as great as you might imagine. You need not supply the world with the next conqueror of disease or major motion picture star. If your child simply grows up to be someone who does not use the word collectible as a noun, you can consider yourself an unqualified success. Children do not really need money. After all, they don't have to pay rent or send mailgrams. Therefore, their allowance should be just large enough to cover chewing gum and an occasional pack of cigarettes. A child with his own savings account and or tax shelter is not going to be a child who scares easy. A child who is not rigorously instructed in the matter of table manners is a child whose future is being dealt with cavalierly. A person who makes an admiral's hat out of a linen napkin is not going to be in wild social demand. The term child actor is redundant. He should not be further incited. Fran Lebowitz from the new audio version of her collection, The Fran Lebowitz Reader. I think this is a sort of a a question that's central to your career. You were then and are now a great performer. And I think, you know, I I listened to uh, much of the audio book of books that I had already read, and I really enjoyed the performances in addition to the writing. So given that, why did why was your choice to be a writer? What was the thing about writing specifically rather than going into the village vanguard or, you know, going to San Francisco to the hungry eye and telling jokes or doing some other why why writing specifically? A snobbery. I would say <laughs> it would be a part of it. Um I have an incredible reverence for books. It is my religion. Um, and also up until the point that I got my first actual writing job, I loved to write. You know, I I wrote all the time when I was a kid and when I was a teenager. Um, and I – the second I got my first tiny, you know, $10 writing assignment from a tiny, tiny newspaper, suddenly I hated to write. And I realized that, you know, I am so resistant to authority that I am even resistant to my own authority. So that the second I said, Fran, you have to write, which before that it was, I would rather write than do anything else. Um, and that unfortunately has stayed with me. Are, are there other things that you've been able to frame as indulgences <laughs> that you can continue to do? Well, reading. I mean, I, I've spent really most of, you know, hour, you know, if you counted up the hours, uh, I've spent probably most of my life reading. And I have probably almost never uh, read without feeling guilty. I must always feel there's undercurrent of guilt when I'm reading um, because I always feel I'm supposed to be doing something else. And I always am supposed to be doing something else. So when I was a kid, it was I was supposed to be doing homework. And as an adult, I'm supposed to be writing. So that um, – but that is certainly what I spent most of my life doing. Did you really hate homework? Hate. I hate work. I hate <laughs> all work. I have never had any work that I enjoyed. I am by nature a sloth. You know, I am really lazy and I really don't like to work. And I have always felt that I would have made a spectacularly competent heiress. However, this didn't happen to me. And I know heiresses. I know people inherited money. They're always looking for things to do. I'm always saying, are you crazy? You're an heiress. Lie on the sofa. Read. When you described the change that writing had, the role of writing in your life had when when you became a professional writer, that it became work which you loathe. I was thinking, I mean, I can tell, and you've said how important writing is to you. Like, that just sounds like a, a really painful bind to be in, to have this thing that you care so much about that's also so painful. Yes, well, that perhaps counts for the door expression on my face. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, for, for real, I mean, that's like... That is for real. Yes, I was, uh, yes, it's painful. You know, there are painful things in our lives that we don't seem to be able to, <coughs> excuse me, that we don't seem to be able to fix. Obviously, if I knew exactly what this was, I would fix it. I do not know what it is. Exactly. I have my theories. 
Other people even seem to have their theories about this. This is what surprises me is that there are many people who have theories about why I'm not publishing books. And I find it kind of odd that people care that much about why I'm not. I don't care that much about other people's work. But uh, but if I actually knew what it was exactly, things that you know the origin of, you have a high chance of fixing. I don't know. However, I do not believe that I will never write again. And since no one would accuse me of being a cockeyed optimist, probably I will. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Fran Lebowitz. An audio book read by her of her essays was released this year. It's called The Fran Lebowitz Reader. When was it that you decided that it, that being funny was an okay part of being the kind of artist that you wanted to be, the kind of sort of high, doing the high-minded, as you said, snooty stuff that you wanted to do? I mean, it just came out that way. I didn't really think about it. The first um, writing I published was um, were book reviews. Uh, and it's it's my natural mode of expression. Uh, and also, I did notice. I mean, I did book reviews, and then I did movie reviews. I did movie reviews because the movie reviewer got some real assignment from like the New York Times. And I did movie reviews, and right away, people paid attention to them. And so the first thing I realized is people prefer movies to books, <laughs> um, and more people will read movie reviews than will read book reviews. Um, and the funniness just was there. You know, so I didn't really think about it. It's not that I have uh, a snobbish attitude toward funny and not funny. In fact, quite the opposite. I've always, I always can't stand people who uh, or uh, or judgments that you know being funny is less serious than being serious. And of course, that is not the case. I mean, um, but I certainly have always made a distinction between writing and show business. And show business is something I never liked. I don't like it now. You know, and you know, I participate in it to a certain extent. Um, but to spend my life in it, I would never have wanted to do it. And I have had zillions of offers, um, zillions of hours to do it. And I have, even though there have been very lean periods in my life financially, I've never, ever said, why didn't you take that $11 zillion from so-and-so? I never felt that. Now, I've, I've, heard, you, I've heard you say that before. And, I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what – what is it – what conviction is it that you think that you hold that means that even if you're having a hard time supporting yourself through other means, um, that it still feels comfortable for you to say no to show business? I mean I've met show business people. They're often creepazoids. Is that that? It's that but, you know. I always knew you know when my first book came out, I get literally an avalanche of offers of of every description and ones that are beyond description. Uh, and I, even I mean, I, I was twenty seven when my first book came out. You know, so now that's considered very young. It wasn't at the time, by the way. When my first book came out, not one single review said what a young writer. That is a common age to publish first book. Um, and uh, but I did instinctively know that they don't give you this money for nothing. And they don't give you this money for the thing that you did, you know. And this has always been true, and this will always be true. And it is not that I don't like money, you know, or that I'm not materialistic. I'm an American, you know. I'm in fact very materialistic. I just have always liked myself better than I like money. And I, you know, they what they ask you for for that money to me is not worth it. It just isn't worth it. You're not going to find any person who ever was in movies or on television, you know, who doesn't have lots of executives telling you what to do, people who absolutely cannot do the thing you do. You know, it's a, it's a kind of a ludicrous way that um, the entertainment business is structured. It's, it is it, – I mean I guess business could be like that too. I guess you could be the president of a tire company and have no idea how to make a tire. On the other hand, it's unlikely that you go onto the factory floor and say, no, 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 not that time. But they do do that and um, people accept this and people – uh, writers especially, you know, in the movie business or in television, or um, they become so used to it that they have contempt for people who don't do it. You know, it's often like screeners who say, well, you think your writing is, is carved in stone? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yours is not because they, they won't let you. You know, I, my feeling is no matter how bad a, a, a television script is or a movie script is, that writer has done a better job than the executive telling them what to do could possibly do. You know, so I don't have the right attitude for it, to tell you the truth. Have you ever been invited to do that thing called uh, punch up, where you, yes. where a bunch of people get paid very well to add jokes to something? Yes. How did you feel about that? No. No. The answer, for, uh, I mean, lo- that I probably could have done. I mean, m- many things I was offered, I couldn't even do. You know, I mean, oh, television. I always said, 
could, I couldn't even do it. I don't want to do it. But let me assure you, I could not sit in a room with other people and write. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, and, and that fast, you know, the amount of work television writers do and how fast it has to be done. Um, punching up, you know, which they will literally ask you, you know, to fix this character's dialogue, you know, make this character funny. It's such to me such a crazy idea of writing. I mean, if you look at movie credits and you see there's like 15 writers, what does that even mean? You know, so well, it means 15 other writers weren't credited. <laughs> yes, but I mean, it's is there a doubt in your mind that any comedy you've ever seen would have been vastly improved with one writer? Okay, that, uh, or vastly improved if the writer directed it. You know, so that uh, <clears throat> yes, I, I there there may be some kinds of um, writing like that that I haven't been asked to do, but I can't think of any. So when you had times in your life where things were thin, um, which I, you know, I, I don't know to what extent they are. I mean, you're still an in-demand public speaker and so on and but so forth. But this is not a thin time. Yeah. Um, uh, well, first of all, maybe you could tell me about what those times were like, but also what what you did to get out of them. Because I don't, I mean, you obviously didn't publish your way out of them. This is true. <laughs> I mean, you know, I do all these lecture dates. I've always done them. Um, sometimes I do more than others because uh, I get asked to do more than others. Um, they're pretty uh, lucrative. They're lucrative enough if you haven't expanded your way of life, you know, to some – which I never did, you know. So I never put myself in a position, you know, of having to keep up a life that was psychotic, you know. Um, I also – but when my first book came out, um, I did indulge my – uh, lifelong uh, love of fine furniture. And as the years went on, I sold this furniture. And because I happened to be really good and knowledgeable about furniture, everything I bought went up in price. Um, and so for a while, I lived on my furniture as it fled my apartment. Um, and you know, sometimes I don't even know how I did it. You know, I mean, as far as I could tell, I, I bought an apartment in 1984. Um, and I, I lived there for 26 years. I have no idea how I paid for it. I mean, sometimes I look back when I when I sold my apartment. I looked at the eighty zillion dollars it cost to live in this apartment. I truly have no idea how I paid for it, but I know I did because they didn't throw me out of it. You know, uh, I guess I just put stuff together and sold furniture. I, you know, I'm <laughs> guessing this is mostly what I did because I can't really think of how I did it. I'm impressed to hear that you that you bought the apartment in 1984, which is like a couple years after your second book was published. And Six so, years, uh, uh, seven years after. So you, so you went, you you decided to go all in after you stopped publishing books. <laughs> well, but I had published two bestsellers, so I had money. I didn't spend the money. I've never been in debt. You know, I've ne I was never someone who thought like the way apparently everyone else did. A credit card it doesn't seem like money, does it? I always said yes. To me, it seems just like money. So um, I never spent more money than I made, and I never. I never did that and hence I have a lot of disdain for people who do. Um, I mean not for people who have to because they have starving children but for people who think four cars, that's the appropriate amount of cars to have. I mean stuff that people do that's nutty that I think is nutty. Um, yeah, I bought the apartment um, later because uh, it took me a while to, to imagine that I could buy an apartment. I want to ask you about this furniture thing. I know that this is not directly related to your life's work, but um, my uh, – again with my mother. But my, my mother has – when I try and explain to people how my mother supported herself through uh, like graduate school, when she went to graduate school when I was a kid, I try and explain this thing about my mom having furniture in her house that she sells for more than she bought it for, but she's not exactly a furniture dealer. And I and she has since become sort of a furniture dealer. But I know that the things that come into the house are always things that she cares about. And the things that go out of the house, you know, sometimes they're really – they're things that she really loved. Sometimes they're not. And there's sort of things that stay in the house because they would be the last thing to go. You know what I mean? They're like the special thing that she would not sell unless it was really important. I, I every piece of furniture I sold, I wanted to keep. So I never sold anything I didn't that I wanted to sell ever. What did you keep? Um, that first round, um, my bed probably, um, uh, which is immensely elaborate. Outshone only by Mark Twain's bed. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, Your bed or Mark Twain's bed? Mark Twain's. Also, is that know, an invitation or? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I know you've never seen mine. Um, 
but Mark Twain's house is a museum. It's open to the public. And um, uh, as the same era is why I thought of Mark Twain. It's, I, most of her, almost all furniture I bought was 19th century American furniture. Um, I sold my desk. I sold – which I didn't have any use for it. I sold my desk and a couple years later, a man came up to me in a restaurant and told me, I bought your desk um, and because I sold it to a dealer who sold it. Uh, I bought your desk and I – but I don't really like Stickley Furniture. It was a Gustav Stickley desk. I don't, but I bought it because you wrote your second book on it. And I said, I did not write my second book on it. <laughs> and he told me how much he paid for it. And the furniture dealer you know, got double what he told me he got. So I've sold furniture but been cheated in doing so. Is do you do you like this? Do you like stickly furniture? Or are you a simple furniture person? I, I like I love stickly furniture. Um, I always liked it. And I, when I started buying it in the late seventies, someone said to me, "But friend, you liked this in like nineteen seventy. I remember that you liked this in nineteen seventy. And this bookcase, for instance, you know that you now can't buy because it's too expensive by nineteen seventy eight. Uh, you know that bookcase was two hundred dollars in nineteen seventy. Why didn't you buy it then? And I said, "Who had two hundred dollars in nineteen seventy? I had no. I never had any money, and I, I, I never had one penny more than I needed, you know, to survive. So that um, I, I believe I've always been quite a profit when it comes to furniture, but I never had the money to to do that. After a break, Fran Lebowitz talks about her beloved pale gray checker cap. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Video International. Hey, podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference, and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Fran Lebowitz. An audiobook of her essays was released earlier this year. It's called The Fran Lebowitz Reader. You run in fancy circles, um, and I'm sure other circles as well. But yes, I, many. I'm guessing that you, that you've that you have friends who like do things like have their own restaurants or hotels or something. I don't know what fancy people in New York exactly are like, but something like that. Um, do you ever feel uh, do you ever feel weird or left out because you're the person that you know has to get invited to the three hundred dollar plate dinner or something like that? Um, well, rather first than, of all, no, rather than inviting everyone, no. First of all, no, uh, no person who's ever been to a three hundred dollar plate dinner wants to go to one. Uh-huh. Uh, so, <laughs> but I have never felt. Um, I would say that the luckiest thing in my life is that I am as free of envy as a human being could be. That doesn't mean I never feel it, but I almost never feel it. And so and I, I think the reason I never feel it is for some reason, even as a child, I always know that you can't just covet something someone has. You have to be that person. You know, in other words, you can't just have the plane. You have to be the person who can have the plane. And frankly, that's really not of interest to me. So I just don't feel I don't feel that way. I have never felt that way. I don't think it, I've never felt that what other people have or do in their life has anything to do with me. What about the what about the other part though? I mean, there's there's the part of like, oh, you know, I wish I had the fancy things that that person had. But then there's the other part of sort of feeling feeling bad that you can't do for that person what they do for you or something like that. Because you mean I, that's absolutely true. I cannot offer you a ride on my plane. <laughs> on the other hand, that's you know, that's why I invited you on my show, Fran. Let's get down to brass tacks. <laughs> that's right. So, I need a ride back to California. Well, you know, I can't give you that ride. On the other hand. Um, I'm a pretty lovely traveling companion. So, you know, I'm assuming that's why they give me a ride. They don't have to give me a ride, uh, you know. Um, and, you know, if I had a plane, I would give people's ride, rides. But I don't have a plane. I will never have a plane. Um, and so I don't think about it. All, all, you, all you have to offer is a 1979 checker cab. I do. I have that. I could give you a ride, although not now because it is in rehab. I would imagine a 1979 checker cab spends a fair amount of time in rehab. Well, mine does only because it's so highly maintained. I mean, truthfully, I mean, I'm certain that the United States government has essential military technology that is not as carefully maintained as my car because my car is 
I would say my marriage. You know, it's the only monogamous relationship I've ever had in my life. Um, and the reason for that is I've never gotten tired of my car. Every time I see the car, I think what a beautiful car. Um, and so it's in pretty tip-top condition. So it's often being attended to. Do you have one of these? Do you have one of these secret stockpiles of pieces of nineteen seventy-nine checker cars? No. And you know what I didn't know, and no one did, is that the checker car company was put out of business in a leverage buyout in the early eighties. Um, and leverage buyout, you know, was some hideous invention of these uh, financial people. Now it looks like nothing compared to the stuff they've invented since. But um, and so there was no notice. It just went out of business. It was doing very well, the company, but it went out of business. If I'd known, yes, of course, I would have bought especially body parts. For many years, I thought it wasn't that bad a problem uh, uh, for engine parts because as I used to say with tremendous confidence to people, it's a standard GM engine, meaning they're never going to stop making this stuff. Uh, I, a few years ago, had to have custom-made a, uh, a fuse, a fuse, <laughs> a fuse. You know, fuses cost when they're available commercially. You know, a dollar. Okay, fuses that are made. You know, you could put a child through college. Now, sane people say, you know, especially sane people who are not zillionaires, the car is too expensive to maintain. Now, I'm going to sell it, and I get offers for it every time that car comes out of the garage. People crowd around, you know, throwing money in my face. Um, is it yellow? I watch. No, I remember it seeing is, it in the movie, but I don't remember. It is it is such a subtle shade of pearl gray that straight men oh, think, yes. that straight men think it's white. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I have to get it out of a garage, I always say to the straight guys who work in the garage, it's that big white car. But it is not white. It is pearl gray verging on oyster. Where do you get a fuse made? Do you have to go to the guy that makes artisanal Edison bulbs for <laughs> restaurants in Brooklyn? Uh, uh, there are all manner of businesses that cater to the very rich or very crazy. <laughs> you could have anything made. I wonder if I wonder if this is resonant for you at all. But one of the reasons that I care a lot about you and your writing is that I remember first reading your books and people telling me that they're really funny. And things being funny is one of the most important things to me. And I had read books that people had told me were really fun funny before and rarely were they really funny to me. Like sometimes they were wise or clever, but not like actually funny the way that something that's funny is funny. And when I read your books, I thought, oh, those are really funny. Like I was laughing sincerely, not just as that kind of laugh that people make when they go see a Shakespeare play and they want to demonstrate that they got the reference in Elizabethan English or something. You know what I mean? Yes. I, w I think it's safe to say my books are free of Elizabethan English. <laughs> <laughs> but that idea of having a book that is a uh, – having writing that is both real writing and is funny, you know, it's like you know, Mark Twain and stuff like that. But it's something that is not often valued by people who also value, you know, not being dumb or liking to read a book. Well, it's, it may not be very highly valued because it's not very frequent. You know, it just isn't very frequent. It's not, you know, there are some talents that are more common than others. You know, like acting seems to be a very common talent, by which I mean there are a lot of really good actors. There are so many really good actors that at any given time, 90 percent of the really good actors in America are out of work, OK? There are very – there are far fewer really good writers and of those, there are far fewer really good writers who are really funny. Um, it doesn't make these talent – what it makes these talents is, is rarer. That's all. You know, why that is, I have no idea. You know, I mean uh, – so I think that it, it is true that there aren't a lot of uh, really funny writers. When I published my first book um, – I mean there was a lot of resistance to publishing this book uh, I mean uh, because there was a belief that it was not um, modern. In other words, in 1978, uh, someone at my publishing house said, you know, there hasn't been a, you know, a funny – a book of you know, comic essays that succeeded in this country since the 1920s. You know, and I, you know, I said, well, that's because no one wrote one, not because people don't like them. You know, I mean people – People certainly like things that are funny. This is, you know, uh, uh, and people certainly uh, would like a book that was funny. I mean, of course, I have to say, since I published that book, it's an industry, you know. Um, but there's lots of books that are supposed to be funny published, and they're not. Not a lot of them are funny. That is true. Do you get the kick out of 
performing uh, and saying something that's funny and having people laugh that people whose first calling is performance do? Well, I enjoy it. I mean, I really enjoy uh, being on a stage. I really enjoy especially doing questions and answers with the audience. I find it so fun that I don't even think about it when I do it. I really enjoy it. Um, I don't know. I've known in my life a couple comedians, if that's what you mean. Um, It is not my impression that they enjoy it that much. You know, and that may be because that's their work. You know, Uh, I get get the impression it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like you know the way drug users say it's really amazing at the beginning, and then you kind of get used to it, but you still have to have it, or else there's a hole. Well, I mean, the comedians that I've known in my life, um, some of whom are very good comedians. I can't say – I cannot think of a single comedian I've ever known who is funny in conversation, um, which I find bizarre, you know. Uh, but I do know that, you know, they very much are very anxious about performing. I don't know any that aren't. I've never met one that isn't anxious about performing. Um, I've always wondered why people who uh, have stage fright and things like that become performers. It is common, as I'm sure you know, that people whose entire – Profession is to appear before the public – is f- afraid to appear before the public. Um, I really enjoy it. I find it very relaxing. I have no anxiety about it at all. I have actually fallen asleep in the Letterman Green Room. Um, <laughs> and so I have absolutely no anxiety about appearing you know, in a, uh, you know, on TV or on a stage or whatever. Um, I have really – like a junkie. It's good that you mentioned that. You know, heroin addicts, they have only one problem. They're heroin addicts. I think that sometimes I've known many in my life, and I always think sometimes that's why they become a heroin addict. You know, heroin addicts don't worry about their marriage. They don't worry about their mortgage. They don't. All oh, they have. Once you're a junkie, you have one problem, and that's you're a junkie. And I think I've taken all human fears, and I have only one fear, and that is of writing. So consequently, there's not enough left over to be fearful of being on television or being on a stage. Um, I've just never felt fearful about it. I feel a tiny bit of anticipation because it's enjoyable. Um, and that's all I feel. Well, Fran, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. It was really, uh, really fun to talk to you. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Fran Leibowitz. An audiobook of her essays was released earlier this year. It's called The Fran Leibowitz Reader. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Even if you haven't heard Kareem Riggins' name, there's a good chance you've heard his work. First and foremost, he's a drummer. Kareem has played for jazz greats like Ron Carter and Diana Krall and hip-hoppers like Mad Lib. But he's also a producer. He's worked on songs for Common, The Roots, and Erica Badu, among others. Now he's going solo. He's fused his drum work with his production chops to craft an instrumental hip-hop record called Alone Together. In 1985, Kareem Riggins was about 10 years old and living in Chicago. He got bored. My mom wouldn't let me watch television, so I found other outlets. And that's around the time I went through my grandmother's record collection and found the 45. But it took some digging. All of her records were stacked up in piles. There were so many records looking at the labels. Like if a label looked very interesting, that's when I would put it on. One of the labels said James Brown. That one stuck out. James Brown's name just looks so grand to me, you know. The song that changed Kareem's life was Give It Up, Turn It Loose. What was the first thing on the record that he noticed? The drums. And I knew I wanted to learn exactly what was going on on that record, so I repeated it several times. I hear the influence of Africa in the drum pattern, you know. Uh, like if you listen to a lot of Fela's music, the accent is not actually always on two and four, but you still feel it, you know. I, I felt like I discovered something new. This was like totally new to my ears, very refreshing. 
Dynamics of the arrangement with the horn section coming in to the bridge. Horn section. Dynamics. Everyone in James Brown's band, they all played their part perfect. You know, not one person adding too much or too less. It was all perfect. A snap of a finger. Or just a lift of a hand or a facial expression can change the direction of the music. He had that much control over his hand. You know, it's about the simplicity as well as being funky. That's a big inspiration. The yow is classic. I think once I heard James Brown, I wanted to dance. I wanted to, you know, sing like him. I wanted to be just like James Brown. That really changed my whole life as far as uh, how I listen to music. And what I listen for in music. Riggins is a hip-hop producer and drummer. His new album is called Alone Together. It's on Stone's Throw Records. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. When you hear this line, what do you think of? If you're over 45 or so, maybe you think of the Isley Brothers. It's from a song called Footsteps in the Dark. A beautiful song. But if you're younger than that, you probably think of another song entirely. You probably think of Ice Cube. You probably think of It Was a Good Day. It Was a Good Day was Ice Cube's biggest hit, and for good reason. It's a great record. Cube wrote and recorded the song in 1992. It was a few months after the L.A. riots. He'd always been ferocious on the microphone, the definitional gangster rapper. He was also deeply political, keen to overturn the system or whatever else he could get his hands on. In 1992, though, he was caught between two poles. One was his enormous personal success. The other was his neighborhood, the core of his identities, which was in ruins. He said that he thought, and this is a quote, okay, there's been the riots. People know I will deal with that. That's a given. But if I rap all this gangsta stuff, what about all the good days I had? Just waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kind of odd. No barking from the dog, no small. And mama cooked the breakfast with no harm. I got my grub on, but didn't dig out. Finally got a call from a girl I want to dig out. If that's all it was a good day was, just a chronicle of a happy day in Los Angeles, it would be a great record. It's a beautiful beat. Cube's one of the best rappers of all time. But it isn't really about a great day that Ice Cube just had. It's about the bad one that he could have had. He closes the first verse with some talk about how great he was on the basketball court. Then he says, and I think this is telling, 
I can't believe it was a good day. In the second verse, he wins some money shooting dice, and then he wins a domino game. But his closer isn't about how great it is to have all that money. He won the money, plus nobody I know got killed in South Central L.A. Today it was a good day. Every few lines is one of these vivid scenes. Sex, driving around, a great breakfast, but hanging just outside the frame of every shot is darkness. The song's beautiful. It's blissed out. It's also haunted by that darkness. The cruel fact that buzzes through the song is that what makes this day a good day isn't what went right, but what didn't go wrong. It's a day where even mythological achievement, magical achievement, is dwarfed by the simple absence of tragedy. Today I didn't even have to use my AK. I gotta say it was a good day. That's my own chat. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. Our thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for engineering our Fran Lebowitz interview. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.